You're listening to Tell It from Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, where we preach Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Dr. Abraham Joseph. For upcoming events and services, visit our website at cbcnyc.org. And now, here's today's message. So this morning, uh, we are going to continue in our series on... um, There we go. Uh, the foundational series that we've been, uh, we're going to look, do this month. We looked at the story of Scripture uh, last Sunday, that all of Scripture comes to tell one story of this God who creates all things and in spite of our rebellion uh, has redeemed and will fully redeem us when he, his son comes back to renew all things. The story of Scripture is the story of God, our God who exists always as one God, but yet in three persons. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And then, Lord willing, next week we will look at the story of our church. Who are we as a church and why are we here? Uh, what's our purpose in, in God's plan? Uh, and finally, we will look at ourselves as individuals uh, in relationship with one another. Uh, who are we and why has uh, God placed us here and how we ought to live? Uh, the reason we are doing this series is so that when we go into our expository preaching series, Uh, which will start, Lord willing, in March with Ephesians, uh, is placed in its proper context and framework. Uh, These four stories is a summary of what Scripture teaches about these things, about uh, the whole story of Scripture. It's 66 books, but it's one book with one author telling one story that points to our one hero, the Lord Jesus Christ. So all of Scripture, as we look at the parts, has to be related to this whole. And that God that we preach in in our verse-to-verse exposition is that one God who exists in three persons. Uh, we need to know who that God is. And as a church, we are part of that story. We are in that story, even as we look for that story, uh, to come to his glorious end, which will be a new beginning. And the context of who we are as God's people is important for us as we hear the truth of Scripture so that we know who we are and how we ought to live in light of this God whose plan is eternal, and who will fulfill all his purposes. So this morning, we are going to look at the story of our triune God. Uh, Before we do that, let's go to him in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this morning, that you are the God who made all things. You are the God who, in spite of our rebellion, uh, Father, you did not abandon us. You did not abandon your creation. But even right there, you promised that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The seed who will be the seed of Abraham will be a blessing to the nations. The seed who will be the seed of David, whose kingdom will, uh, will be forever. That seed who was finally, at the right time, was born of a woman, born under the law, our Lord Jesus Christ, whom you gave to live that perfect life of obedience which we ought to have lived, but we didn't. And he died in our place in paying for our sins and bearing your wrath. And you raised him up and you exalted him to your right hand and he has poured out your Holy Spirit on us that we, empowered by your spirit, may be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. So that, Lord, at, his, at your appointed time when he returns, we, along with all of creation, uh, will do what we already do, that is to bow our knee before him and confess him as Lord to your glory. I pray that you this morning as we look to your word, Uh, Father, we are uh, feeble sinners. Who are we? 
to talk about God, but yet we can't help but talk about you because you have revealed yourself to us, not from a distance, but in an intimate way, drawing us into a relationship with you as your children, saved, uh, indwelt by your spirit, united to your son, in fellowship with you. How can we not help not talk about you? This morning, I pray that our witness uh, from, our, from your word would be empowered by your spirit. Teach us your truth. We pray this in the name of your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. This morning, as you were uh, coming here to join us for worship, uh, maybe somebody in, your tra in the train or bus asked you, where are you going on this snowy Sunday morning? And you said, oh, I'm going to church uh, to worship God. And if they were to ask you, well, who is this God that you worship? How would you answer him? If uh, this was my classroom, I would wait for an answer. Uh, but even if you answer, I can't hear you. Uh, but, but who is this God that we worship as Christians? Who is this God that we are gathered here to worship? A God who is not distant, but a God who is present with us. You know, we, we think everybody knows who God is, and uh, we speak of God as though everybody means the same thing when we say God. Uh, but it's not as simple or easy as that. The dictionary meaning of God, for example, uh, is very generic. Webster says the supreme or ultimate reality. Well, that doesn't say much, right? Uh, is that reality a real person, or is that, is that a real being, or is it uh, some kind of a force? So uh, that's where uh, the Cambridge Encyclopedia really helps us a bit. No, it doesn't. Uh, a supernatural being or power. It could be a being or a power. That doesn't help. And the object of worship. Well, is there any difference if how we would worship this being, if it was a being or if it was power? Uh, so it, when we say God to somebody, and that person who asks you who is this God may not mean, mean the same thing. Francis Schaeffer, that famous uh, Christian philosopher, he said the word God was far more ambiguous than the term dog. Everybody knows what a dog is, right? That four-legged thing with a tail that barks. But not everybody means the same thing when you speak of God. Uh, Christians often make the mistake that, oh, you know, they believe in God. Well, really, what do they mean by God? Which God do they believe in? There are lots of questions uh, Scott Horrell was uh, my professor of theology. He said, all of these questions, and there are more, I just picked a few. Uh, there are questions about God. Does God even exist? Uh, not everybody believes that there is a God. If, if, if he does exist, is he a personal God, or is he some impersonal God, you know, out there somewhere? Is he finite or infinite in terms of time and space, his knowledge and his power? Uh, is he one, or are there many gods? You know, each one specializing in its uh, in his own division. You know, we have that in uh, the country that I grew up in. There was a god of wealth. There's a god of education, and you know, you go to these specialists for what you need. Uh, is God transcendent somewhere out there, uh, doing his own thing? Uh, the the deists had that kind of a god, who set all things in motion and withdrew. Uh, for things to carry on. Or is he imminent? Uh, imminent mean being present with us. Is he present with us as one of us? Is he part of creation? Or is he separate from creation? Uh, is God static? That is, is he unchanging and immutable? Or is God ever-changing, evolving? 
Is he a God in process? Is he a, is he a being or a becoming? Uh, even so-called Christian theologians uh, have these questions about uh, the nature of God. Does he reveal himself or is he a pure mystery? We left ourselves to, to find out who he is. Do we come to God through reason? Uh, by faith? Or maybe there's some secret knowledge, uh, gnosis, that's just given to a few people. Well, let's assume that he exists. Is he good? Or is he evil? Or like is the yin and the yang? Is he both? Uh, finally, is it, and there's more, there are more questions you can ask about God. Is he just? Or is he, uh, is he merciful? Can he be both at the same time? Uh, or maybe he's just indifferent. These are questions people ask concerning God, and when we say uh, we believe in God, we go to worship God, uh, things are not as settled as we think they are. So what are we to do? Uh, for the existence of God, there are lots of philosophical and moral and uh, experiential arguments. Uh, but these arguments, while they may lead us to a probability that God does exist, it leads us only to a, a generic God. Uh, but God is not a generic God. A generic God is an idol. There is one God who has revealed himself. Uh, uh, but hasn't God revealed himself in nature? Uh, can, can people look at that which is created and see that there is a God and know him? Well, scripture does teach that God reveals himself in nature. Uh, Psalm 19, for example, in verses uh, 1 through 6, it tells us, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. All creation speaks of the glory of God. Everybody receives this general revelation. There is a creator behind this creation who is responsible for this creation. Well, everybody sees the sun. Everybody sees the rain that falls on the ground or snow like this morning. Uh, don't they then know that there is a God who made all these things? Well, scripture insists that people ought to know. In Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, we read, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. When we look at the bright sun, when we look at the great mountain, when we look at the mighty ocean, those things speak of the God who made them, of his eternal power, of his divine nature. And one should be able to perceive that there is this God who has made all things, but there's a problem. By the way, I hope you brought your Bible. We're going to be in a lot of scriptures today. Uh, the, what is the problem? The problem is not with creation. The problem is not with how God has revealed himself generally to all people. The problem is with us. It's not the revelation that's the problem. It's the reception that's the problem. Romans 1, 18 and verses 20, the, the latter part of verse 20 and verse 21 tells us, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against, un against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The heavens speak the truth that there is a God. He's made all things. He's powerful. He's divine. 
But instead of receiving the truth, we are told we suppress the truth by our unrighteousness. Because to acknowledge that there is a God of the universe is to acknowledge our accountability to him. And therefore, uh, we who do not who want to do our own thing, want to be our own gods, that hasn't changed since the garden, we, we suppress the truth of that revelation. So Romans goes on to say, so they are without excuse. We are responsible. God holds us accountable for that suppression of this revelation. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. To turn away from God who is light is to turn to darken, darkness and how our minds darken. Some of the brightest of people in this world have the darkest of minds because they have turned away from the living God of the universe. They have suppressed the truth of God. See, but the problem is that uh, you can't ignore God. You know, we were made to worship God. So when you don't turn to the living God of the universe who has revealed himself, we turn to idols. Idolatry is inevitable. For though they knew God, we are told, Roman goes, Romans goes on to say, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And how did they do that? They started worshiping the creation instead of the creator. And the creation that man worships the most is his self. We, worship, we are worshipers ourselves. I can't uh, forget a t-shirt that I saw in, uh, in India. It said, uh, I was an atheist till I realized that I was God. Uh, I haven't seen anybody wearing that t-shirt. I was in the store, but that's pretty much the reality. Everyone takes a godlike posture. So worship of anything other than the creator is idolatry. And idolatry has its consequences. I told you we we're going to be in a lot of scripture. Uh, the, 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 the Ten Commandments, God declared that there's only one God. And because he alone is God, you shall not make any idols before him. He tells us in Exodus chapter 20 verses 3 to 6, You shall have no other idols before me. You shall, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. And these are all where people find gods, right? You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. To turn to idols is to hate God. That's the consequence of idolatry and incur God's wrath. Psalm 115 tells us that God alone is in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. But what about idols? They are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and do not make a sound in their throat. But our God is a God who speaks, a God who hears, a God who responds. How can you make an idol and call that a god? That's why we are created as image bearers, because we speak and hear. But we're not gods. We are people of that god. And here's the consequence of idolatry from Psalm 115 and verse 8. Those who make them become like them, 
so do all who trust in them. We become like that which we worship. So if we are worshiping idol, whatever it may be, we are becoming like the idol that we worship. Isaiah, it's a long passage. I won't read uh, uh, the whole uh, passage there, but in verse 9, he says, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Idols are profitable for nothing, he tells us in verse 10. Those who are idolaters, he says, they shall be terrified. They shall be, they'll be put to shame together. And he goes on to mocks to mark uh, idol makers and idol worshippers. He says out of iron they make an object, an object that they made out of their hands, and then they worship it. Or a man plants a tree, and when it's fully grown, he cuts it down, and with a part of it he cooks his food, and with another part of it, with the rest of it, he, or he says, he makes it into a god, his idol. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. He says, no one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coal, I roasted meat and I've eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself. Idolatry is dangerous. In Romans chapter 1, we began reading verse 21, but it goes on till 32. Uh, they, when we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, we are told that God gives up such people. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. A threefold refrain. There, there's nothing more dangerous than being handed over to God, uh, handed over by God. And what does he hand us over to? to more sin. We often think of uh, judgment as a consequence of sin, uh, but Romans 1 seems to tell us that sin is a consequence of judgment. God hands us over to what we want to do. And we go into immorality and unrighteousness, and if you read the rest of the passage, we become enemies of God. No wonder John, in his first epistle, in the last... Uh, chapter, where in the very last verse, he end, this is how he ends his letter, no grace and peace. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. In the baptism of adults, there's usually this question that's asked, have you turned from idols and turned to the living God of the universe? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. He's writing to believers. But the saddest consequence Jonah tells us in Jonah chapter 2 verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Because the hope of steadfast love is found only in the one true living God. Those who turn to idols forsake that only hope that we have. So what are we to do? Where do we find the real God? Are we without hope? We're groping in the darkness are we left to fend for ourselves in search for a deity that we can worship? Have no fear, because God by nature is one who reveals. We are told that God is light, and the nature of light is to reveal itself, to shed light on everything. So we have a God who has revealed himself in his word. Scripture is clear as to who God is and what he has done, and that he alone is worthy of worship. Scripture over and over, both in the Old and the New Testament, tells us there's only one God. 
the Jewish people in their daily confession at least twice a day or more they confessed the Shema which we see in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 hear O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one hear O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one all around them there are pagan nations that are worshiping many gods and idols of all kinds but Israel needed to tell herself day after day after day in their home when they enter when they go out everywhere hear O Israel hear O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one because everywhere else they're hearing other things but we need to say from well how God has revealed himself that he is one and it is this one God one Lord you shall love with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might James in his backhanded compliment in chapter 2 verse 99 19 he says you believe that God is one you do well even the demons believe and shudder um, he's arguing for a faith that shows itself in works but he's not saying that there's not one God it is true there's one God but faith in that one God expresses that's his argument there but he acknowledges even in the New Testament there's only one God first Corinthians 8 verse 4 Paul in the context of food offered to idols he says therefore as to the eating of food offered to idols we know that an idol has no real existence he's going to go on and say that there are demonic influences behind that but here's what he says there is no God but one a good Jewish Pharisaic background who knows the scripture very well you hear that Shema when he says there is no God but one here O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one there is no God but one so there is no doubt in the scripture there is only one God and that one God is the creator of all things as we saw all things as we saw last week he is sovereign over all things because he is the creator of all things he alone is God he alone is sovereign no one else shares that with him but yet in the scriptures we find that there are three persons who are called God there's one God but, but there are three persons who are called God the, the father is called God in John chapter 4 verses 23 to 24 we will come back to this verse later uh, Jesus in his conversation uh, with the Samaritan woman he says but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the father worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth only God alone is worthy of worship and the father is called God here in first Corinthians chapter 8 verse 6 uh, we'll come back to this verse again he says uh, Paul arguing for the unity of the church he says yet for us there is one God the father from whom are all things for whom we exist both the oneness of God and the father as God Paul speaks of that in, in seeking the unity of the church but not only is the father called God uh, the son is also called God we read in the very familiar words of John in the beginning of his gospel in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God there's God and the word there's differentiation but there's also identification this one who is different from God but yet is God he was in the beginning with God all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of man of men all things were made through him God alone is creator he doesn't share that with anyone else but yet here the word is identified as creator he is distinct from God yet he is God and he shares in the work of God in creation 
Titus chapter 2 verse 13 11 to 13 is the context Paul writes for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people uh, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ their God and Savior both apply to the Lord Jesus Christ here's a verse that speaks directly of Jesus Christ being God Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 through 11 it says have this mind in yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God that's how he eternally existed if you were able to see the pre-incarnate Christ you would have come to only one conclusion this one is God and it is that one who for our sake emptied himself taking on the form of a servant became like men and uh, and 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 humbled himself to death even death on a cross therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every confess every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father uh, you sh if you if you know your Old Testament you would hear from here the echoes of Isaiah chapter 45 verse 23 for where the Lord Yahweh says concerning himself turn to me and be saved you hear the echo in Matthew where Jesus says turn to me all who are weary what God says what Jesus Jesus says in, in Isaiah 45 turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other by myself I have sworn sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me Yahweh says in Isaiah 45 to me every knee shall bow every tongue confess and swear uh, shall swear allegiance what is said of God is said of Jesus what is said of Yahweh is said of Jesus to the God of the Old Testament who Yahweh is the one to whom all creation will bow down and in Jesus we have that God who has been exalted to the Father's right hand we already share that joy and privilege of one day which all creation will join in that is to bow our knee before the one who is our God and our Savior uh, finally in Luke chapter 8 verses 38 to 39 if you watched our midweek uh, encouragement from your pastor uh, I don't know who that is but uh, he, I saw that video uh, uh, we have that uh, story from uh, the Luke's gospel in the garrison demoniac God, Jesus drives out the, the evil spirits from him and he in his right and sober mind uh, in verse 38 of Luke chapter 8 the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he may be with him that is with Jesus but Jesus sent him away saying return to your home and declare how much God has done for you and we read this and he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him Jesus had told him to go and tell what God has done for him he went and told everyone what Jesus has done for him he got it that in Jesus he had met the God of the universe who alone is able to drive out demons because he's above all power and all authority and he's the one who's Lord of all not only the Father and the Son are called God the Holy Spirit is called God in Acts chapter 5 verse 4 you all know that story of Ananias and Sapphira I've always been tempted to preach that passage as a wedding sermon here is uh, uh, here is marital unity gone awry right um, 
those who lie together, lie together, is uh, what one of my friends called it. Uh, but Peter, in confronting Ananias, he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold? Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? Why have you lied to God? There's the parallel passage right there. To lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God because the Holy Spirit is God. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter, in, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, sorry, chapter 2, verses 10 to 14, we are told, the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Only God knows the mind of God. Right? Husbands and wives, we always have this communication problem. It's all clear in the husband's head, but the wife does not know because he has not communicated to him, her. Right? Uh, so the, the, the principle is that uh, only man knows what's going on in his mind, and we don't know what's going on in his mind unless he communicates that. How much more uh, we would, would we know the mind of God unless God does that? But the Spirit, we are told, knows the mind of God. How is that? Because the Spirit is God. Because the one God who exists, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Spirit knows the mind of God, the Spirit reveals God's will to us, and the same Spirit works in us so that we may receive that revelation. Apart from the Spirit of God, we have no revelation, we have no reception either. It's only by the Spirit we know, receive, acknowledge, understand, obey, and live the Word of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, uh, we are collectively called the temple of God because the Spirit of God lives amongst us and then in chapter 6 we are individually called the temple of God for the same reason what is a temple it's where God is present where we go and meet with God and we are the temples of God and together we are the temple of God because the spirit dwells in us and the spirit dwelling makes us a temple because the spirit is God finally in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 we are told how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It's a nice Trinitarian passage, but there is the eternal spirit. Uh, God alone is eternal, and the spirit of God is eternal because the spirit of God is, is God. So what we learn from the scripture is there is one God who forever exists in, scripture, in three persons. Scripture maintains both. That there's only one God. So there's unity in the Godhead. We don't have three gods. We have one God. And the yet that one God exists in three persons. This is not stuff we can make up. This is how God has revealed himself. And we are called to trust. And believe. And submit. To this God who has revealed himself. As one God who forever exists in three persons. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 4, 6. Once you get that you see uh, God as... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet one God, all over the scriptures, in verse, uh, verses 4 to 6, 
Paul is talking about the distribution of gifts in the church. He says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them in everyone. Spirit, Lord, God. Three persons, one Godhead. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7, Paul, speaking of the unity of the church, says there is one God and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The doctrine of the Trinity is a mystery that is revealed to us, but it comes to us not in some kind of esoteric doctrinal treatise, but it comes to us, as we're going to see, in all the practical affairs of our Christian life, our unity, our expression of our gifts. The doctrine of Trinity, as we're going to see, is central to who we are as God's people because our God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are texts in the scripture that are obviously Trinitarian texts. There's the baptism of our Lord Jesus. Uh, in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John, by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. You are my beloved Son, with you, I am well pleased. Uh, there's Jesus. There's the Spirit descending on, a, on him like a dove. And there's the voice from heaven declaring that Jesus is the beloved Son. Mark, in the very beginning of his gospel, has told us that uh, in Jesus we have the fulfillment of God's word through Isaiah the prophet. So he alone uses these words of the heavens being torn open. Uh, others speak of heavens opened up. Or there are people who look up and see uh, into the heavens. But Mark uses the language of heaven being torn open and, uh, and a voice comes out. Why is that? In Isaiah chapter 63, the, God's people are crying out, Look down from heaven and see uh, from your holy and beautiful habitation. Uh, where are your zeal and your might, the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion? Are held back for you are our father through Abraham though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us you O Lord our father and our Redeemer and in verse 64 chapter 64 verse 1 oh that you would rend the heavens and come down the heavens were torn open and the voice said this is my beloved son that God who spoke was called on in Isaiah chapter 64 verse 1 to tear open the heavens and and come down has come down in the person of his son in the transfiguration of Jesus the same thing uh, Jesus takes three of his disciples and they go up the mountain they see Jesus transformed uh, and they see Elijah and Moses with them and Peter usually you know uh, we are told actually that not knowing what to say he said this when you don't know what to say, I think it's better to keep quiet, but he, he says, uh, Lord, let us pitch t uh, three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Uh, you know, in Peter's mind, we got these three great people, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, but they're not equal. <laughs> uh, we are told, a cloud came and overshadowed them. Again, in overshadowing, uh, we, we hear the language of the Spirit in Genesis chapter 1. Now the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. 
in, uh, in Mary's uh, uh, announcement of the angel to Mary, there's a, there's the, the spirit will overshadow you. So there's the cloud overshadowing. The sun is present in, in, in his glorified form. And the voice from the cloud says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Why listen to him? Because just before this, Peter did not listen to him. When he told him that uh, Peter rightly confesses by the Father's revelation that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, but when Jesus told him that as Messiah, he would be handed over to his enemies to be crucified and he would be raised from the dead, Peter wouldn't listen to him. Peter wants his plan for the Messiah. But God says, I have my plan for my Messiah and you listen to him. But for our purposes, we have the Trinity there together again, Father, Son, and, and uh, maybe an allusion to the Spirit. The Great Commission, we will look at this passage when we, uh, for our Easter Sunday, because the Great Commission passage is an Easter passage. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One name, one God, and that one God exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And finally, uh, that, that benediction that comes to us, which we hear so often, but we often forget. We will look at this passage also in just a minute. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. One God, three persons. These are the obvious texts, but there are also other texts that are not so obvious. We heard Jason read uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, which was the text concerning our salvation. The Father has chosen us. The Son has redeemed us. The Spirit has sealed us. Uh, the, the church fathers used to say, in all the external works of God, all three persons are involved. Uh, that in, in creation, all three persons are involved. In redemption, all three persons are involved. In revelation, all three persons are involved. And Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, that's our passage for installation Sunday. Uh, I, I look forward to talking to you from there. But uh, that parts, points to the Trinity. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, in just uh, this opening of a letter... We have the Trinity, Paul, uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And he goes and say in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. John chapter 20, verse 28, my favorite apostle, Thomas, confesses of Jesus, my Lord and my God. Those who... Those monotheistic Jews would have heard in, in confession, my Lord and my God, the words of Psalm 35. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness. The one, the Old Testament, I think the reference here is wrong. It's Psalm 35, not 34, uh, verses 23 and 24. My Lord and my God, and Thomas calls Jesus that, the one he had just refused to believe in the week before, that he was risen from the dead, he now confesses as God, and that God that he confesses in is the God that he has known as Yahweh, the one who has created all things. In 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6, Paul writes, we looked at this passage before, for yet, there, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. There's one God, the Father, one Lord, Jesus Christ. We should hear in this the echo of the Shema. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. The one God who is both Lord and God, Paul takes the Shema, and in that Shema, that confession that that one God is Lord and God, he says, God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. No, they don't have two gods, they don't have three gods, they have one God who made all things. And that one God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No wonder Jesus tells us, I and the Father are not two, I and the Father are one. Uh, there's only one God. The scriptures. Why do we believe in one God who exists in three persons? There is no other way to speak of him if we go by how he has revealed himself in his word. The scripture compels us to speak of the one God who exists in three persons. If we were to speak of him in other terms, we are not speaking of him. We are speaking of someone else. God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this doctrine of the Trinity is essential for life. It is the foundational doctrine. Without the doctrine of Trinity, there is no scripture, there is no salvation, there is no worship, there is no prayer, there is no fellowship. We have already looked at how all of scripture comes together to teach us there is one God who exists in three persons. We have the Father who makes these covenant promises. We have the Son who is the fulfillment of all of these promises. We have the Spirit of God who ministers that words to us so that our minds and our hearts are illumined, that we may receive and understand and trust and obey the God of the Word. Left to ourselves, we will not obey, trust, no. It is the same God who reveals Himself, who works in us to bring us to that understanding and obedience. See, the, the, God is beyond our imagination. He's beyond our reason. The only re way we know him is because he has revealed himself. God is a mystery, but he's a mystery that has been revealed. We don't comprehend him by uh, human reason, but we receive by faith how he has revealed himself. That's why Augustine and Anselm said, uh, it is faith-seeking understanding. If we start with understanding and then say we would believe, we will never get there. We believe in God as he has revealed himself and then seek him to understand him better, this God whom we have trusted in. So it's always faith first. And that faith seeks understanding because we know, want to know more about this God, how he has revealed himself. So without the doctrine of Trinity, uh, we are worshiping some other God. When we read the scriptures, we ought to read it in accordance with how God has revealed himself as the word of God that points to his son. It's revealed to us by the spirit and is received by us by the spirit, same spirit. We come to it with reverence, with dependence, trusting him to do his work. As we read scripture, we let scripture read us and reveal to us who we really are and allow it to have its way in us because it is the word of God. We already saw from Ephesians chapter 1, uh, chapter, uh, that was 3 to 14, that Jason read for us, that this triune God is responsible for our salvation. Salvation is the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Father chose us before the creation of the earth. He appointed a son to come as a sacrifice for our son, for our sin, and sent him in time. The son came in obedience to the Father and lived that perfect life. And in him, God is going to gather up all things. And that mystery is already revealed to us. And God has sent us his spirit through his son so that we are sealed with him. We belong to God. We are identified with him. We have fellowship with God. But not only is salvation accomplished by the triune God, 
uh, the assurance of our salvation comes by that same triune God. Uh, when we go through sin, uh, when we are sinning and we go through suffering, uh, are we doubt our salvation. In times like that, uh, how do we know that we belong to God? The same God who saves us assures us of our salvation. In Ephesians, same letter in verse chapter 3, verses 14 to 19, uh, Paul is writing to the Ephesians who he thinks may be... Uh, uh, they may lose faith because he, their apostle, was in prison. Uh, how could that be that uh, they could be disheartened? So he writes to them, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So he's praying to the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. He prays that the Father will strengthen us through his spirit in our inner being so that we realize that Christ dwells in our heart through faith and we being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that she may be filled with the fullness of God. We turn to the Father uh, who through his spirit assures us of our unity, uh, of our being united with his Son so that we begin to fathom the unfathomable love of God from which in Christ Jesus from which we can never be separated. If that does not give us assurance, I don't know anything else well. Titus chapter 3, Paul tells us uh, our sanctification. Quite often we think God saves us and then it's up to us to be holy. No, it's God this, who works us uh, by his, to, in us by his spirit to form Christ in us by which we are made holy and by, which, by whom we do the good works. Without the doctrine of the Trinity, there's no Christian worship. Remember Paul in the, you know, on Mars Hill on the, to the Athenians, he says, you, you worship an unknown God. We are not here worshiping an unknown God. We are worshiping the God we know because he has revealed himself to us. Now, we often think of worship as something we do, something that is left to us. And we go back and say, you know, worship service wasn't quite as, you know, uh, because somebody didn't what, do what they were supposed to do. Uh, no, worship is something that God initiates and God empowers. Uh, that's what the scripture teaches us. It is God who both initiates and empowers us for worship. Um, I love what uh, Beth Felker Jones, I think she teaches in, um, I forget which seminary, she used to be in Wheaton. Uh, she says that the heart of the doctrine of the Trinity is about who we are. Um, it is about who we worship. There's nothing more wonderful, life-giving, or joyful than to worship the true and living God who is triune. And she goes on to tell us, if idolatry turns us into echoes of our idols, those who worship, him, worship them will be like them. She says, worship of the true God shapes us too, draws us to God in relationship to God and changes us into be luminous reflections of God's true nature. Those who worship idols become like idols. Those who worship the true God, he's at work in us, forming Christ in us. Ephesians chapter 8, do not get drunk with wine for this debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord. By the Spirit we make melody to the Lord, giving thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus to the Samaritan woman, true worshipers who worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He's not talking about us. Those who worship the Father will worship 
in the Spirit. If you read throughout the Gospel of John, maybe except for two references, the Spirit is always the Holy Spirit. True worshipers can worship God only by the Holy Spirit and in truth. And if you read through the Gospel of John, who is truth? Truth is not a, you know, Pilate will ask John, uh, ask Jesus, what is truth? You should have asked who is truth because truth was standing before him. I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. So those who worship the Father, worship the Father by the Spirit and by the Son. Prayer. The triune God invites us to prayer. We assume that prayer comes naturally to us, right? Uh, it should, uh, the, that prayer that we uh, pray uh, at the end of the pastoral prayer, uh, the prayer that the Lord has taught us to pray, that's the only thing that disciples that we have recorded that the disciples asked the Lord to teach them. They didn't ask, Lord, teach us to do miracles. They didn't say, Lord, teach us to uh, teach. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. That's the only time they asked because they saw uh, the son's prayers to the father. And we have that instruction to pray. He teaches us how to pray. But prayer is hard. And that's why prayer services are the, the least attended meetings. You know, someone once said, uh, in, in prayer meetings, the only attraction is God. You know, there is no other <laughs> uh, bling over there, you know. Uh, uh, so we, we come, when we come to prayer service, there's, there's God. If you're God's people, you bring him with you, and he is with us where two or three are gathered to there. So, but prayer is hard work and we're not left on our own to pray. In Romans chapter 8 verses 26 to 27 and 31 to 34, uh, we are told the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, uh, pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. The Spirit intercedes for us. And in verse 31, we're told, we're told if God is for us, who can be against us? In verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. The Spirit intercedes for us. The Son intercedes for us. God is for us. Why wouldn't we want to be at a prayer meeting? Come. On Wednesday nights we gather. It's an invitation to come into the presence of the living God who is for us. To the presence of the Son who intercedes for us. The spirit who is in us calling out to God for us even when we do not know what to call out. So prayer is fellowship with God and it's the fellowship with the triune God. Finally, that's what we come to, the Trinity and our fellowship with God. The benediction, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Have you ever had a friend you know, with whom you had a problem and you know, they hurt you deeply? Uh, and then you forgave them, uh, but the friendship never really returns to where it used to be. Uh, you kind of keep them in a distance. Not so with God. While we were still enemies, he sent his son to save us. But now that he has saved us, he brings us into the most intimate fellowship with him. We have fellowship with God. It's not, um, you know, coffee and cookies in the basement. We, we have fellowship with the Father and with the Son, John would tell us in, in, uh, in, his, in his first letter. But this fellowship with this God, this vertical fellowship, means that we also have this horizontal fellowship with all those who are God's people. We are all united to the same Christ. There are not many Holy Spirits. There's this one Holy Spirit who dwells in all of us and unites us together. So fellowship with God also brings us 
fellowship with each other. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 18, for through him, that is Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We can come into the presence of God. That's an, how awesome is that? How amazing is that? When we gather together as God's people, we come into the very presence of God. That's why my brothers and sisters, Hebrews wants us that not to forsake the assembly. Come and join us because God is present. Uh, so if, if you're local and uh, if you're watching online, uh, the invitation is, is to you. Come, join us. Uh, we would love for you to be with us. We would love for you to be with us in the presence of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who live in perfect unity. And as those who are in fellowship with him, we too enjoy that unity. We too enjoy that fellowship. We are formed according to the image of God by being formed in the image of his Son by the Holy Spirit. For that we can give thanks. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning that you have not left us in the darkness, but you have revealed yourself to us. One God who has made all things. The one God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, for sending us your Son for giving us your spirit to unite us to your son, that in him we are adopted as your children and we cry out to you as Abba, Father, even as he did, because while he is your eternal son, we are your adopted children in him. Thank you. May your name be honored and glorified as we live out this, this life of the people of the one God who exists in three persons. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit cbcnyc.org give or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to Tell It From Calvary.